and it was pretty clear to me that there was a gap in the conference market for this uh, information that uh, would prove very valuable. So you were interested in what learning or, or kind of generating this conference just as a like a personal learning as well and then obviously to help other people along as well? Certainly, but I think primarily to be able to to uh, spread the word throughout the, the exploration community uh, about uh, the new discoveries that were being made uh, ultimately not only in Australia but throughout the world. That was Keith Yates. And hopefully this gives you some insight into how the New Gen Gold Conference came about. Find out more about the conference by going to their website, newgengold.com. This episode of the Exploration Radio podcast was also sponsored by the AIG, the Australian Institute of Geoscientists. To learn more about the AIG, the program that it supports, or to become a member, please go to aig.org.au. That's aig.org.au. Welcome to Expression Radio. My name is Ahmad, and on this episode, we're going to find out more about the discovery story of Gruyere with Justin Osborne and Kyle Prentice. Now let's get on with the show. Just to start off, do you guys want to give a little bit of introduction to who you are and how you got to where you are right now? Let's just start off with you, Kyle. Yeah, I'm Kyle Prentice. I'm a senior J.O. at Gold Road. I've only ever worked for Gold Road. I left Curtin in 2011, started with the company in August 2011 as an exploration J.O. at Yamana and I've been oh, with wow. the company a little over 10 years. In, in that time, I've been through several different roles from Project J.O., spent some time doing resource geology, was the company's first mine J.O., was able to second to our Gruyere mine with gold fields, and now I'm back doing a little bit, of, little bit of business development. So while you say that, did you join the company as a graduate or graduate as an air quotes? Yeah, I guess it was. We were kind of in the the core of the last big mining boom. So Gold Road was a the quintessential Eastern Goldfields junior. So we didn't have a formal graduate program. We were just a exploration JO, and that meant manning the rigs. You know, we we mm-hmm. loved RAB and we loved RC, and that's what we did day in day out for. For several years, so that's that was my grad program to Gold Road. And so, when you look back now, do you remember particularly why you took Gold Road over other companies? I actually had, I entered a job advertisement on Seek, and that like seems a lot to be of, a common theory of people getting into Gold Road, <laughs> as we'll find out. And like Seek, you know, they, they like to be mysterious about who the company is initially. So I applied for applied for the role as through a employment agency specialising in exploration geos and fieldies. Fortunately, when I got called up to go in for an interview to this office in Altona Street in West Perth, it was Gold Road and I had, I had a good mate from university actually working on the ground in the exploration team. So he kind of gave us, gave us a good word and met with the office manager and one of the company's kind of long-time geos, Paul Sorter, who kind of helped database and some big picture stuff with, the, with Gold Road from the very early days. And yeah, a week and a half later, I was flying out to Laverton. At the time, I had no idea really anything about Gold Road. I didn't know much about the project, but after looking over a few maps, I was seemed like a great mate. And I had a mate from university there, so it was a huge tick. And that's, I think, usually how most of these things end up working out at that time. Absolutely. So how long have you been with Gold Road now? Just a touch over 10 years. Yeah, wow. It was, it was 10 years during Diggers. Oh, that's good. Um, and so, Justin, do you want to give a little bit of background to who you are and how you got to where you are? Yeah, so... I'm a, I'm a geologist 
30 plus years experience. I, I graduated in, in 1988 from La Trobe University in, in Melbourne. I had a couple of years, about almost two years working up in the Territory, finished work up there and ended up in Cambodia with WMC in 1990. I was there for a number of years working in the gold mines and the nickel mines and mm-hmm. After about 10 years, WMC sold their gold business to Goldfields. That's right. Um, and I transferred over to Goldfields at that point, still in Cambodia, and then had a 12-year career with Goldfields where I worked in St. Ives. I worked overseas for, for three years in Finland and, and Oxford, came back to St. Ives for another three years, ended up then in Perth working in the exploration group, the International Exploration Group, for a number of years in a whole variety of roles. End of 2012, I got a redundancy after... so. Basically, 22 years service, took some time off, did a bit of travelling and worked sort of a little bit of consulting work and, and then I thought it was time after about 12 months to, to get back into industry and as you do, you have a, apply for a job on seek <laughs> and I applied for, it was a role that was just advertised for a junior explorer with a property in, in WA and I'd spent a lot of time working overseas and travelling and so I applied for the job. 15 minutes after putting the application in, I got a call from the headhunter, we had a chat the next day, I, um, he said, can you talk to the to the CEO, the managing director, or was it actually an exec chair? And funny thing about this is so I'd worked for Goldfields for 12 years, South African mm-hmm. company, and, you know, fantastic career there. I really enjoyed it, and I learned a hell of a lot. But I'd worked for South Africans for a long time, and I thought, I don't want to work for South Africans again. So I had this, this job interview and the, or a phone call, so the phone rings up with this executive chairman. Yep. First thing I noticed is the South African accent. <laughs> oh no, not another South African. But that was Ian Murray. I went in and met him the next day after that. Uh, that was probably a Friday. I got a job offer on the Tuesday and I started work with Gold Road about three weeks later. So were you uh, looking to move to a smaller company after having been in like big companies? Absolutely. I'd worked for big companies for 20 plus years and I wanted that was specifically what I wanted to go back and work for a junior and take everything I'd learnt in the major companies and there's a lot of really good technical work and a lot of you know you're exposed to a lot of good stuff but you're never exposed to much of the corporate side and I wanted to just have a bit of freedom away from the bureaucracy which is invariably associated with yeah, big companies. Yeah. So that was a real attraction for, for the role. I just find that I think the fact that when you step into smaller companies I think your decisions that you make tend to have a lot more immediate effect as well whereas you know, big companies you do great technical work but there's a time for that machinery to kind of come around and then yeah, it does that work. In small companies you, know, like you can kind of make a decision you can kind of see that impact on a much shorter kind of time frame. You can see results immediately. Mm-hmm. You can see the results of your work or the results of your decisions instantaneously. Where in a big company, especially something like Goldfields is a fantastic company, but it's it's a big company with sort of a head office in Perth and a head office in South Africa. and So it can take a while for results or ideas or, or anything to filter through sort of up and back to where you are. The ability to make a decision and make things happen and do it immediately is is probably one of the attractions for me of working in, in the junior space and the smaller space. And so we also should document that your uh, timing of joining Gold Road is also very good. Do you want to explain why? I should just finish off, I guess. I worked for Gold Road for a bit over eight years mm-hmm. um, and I actually I just finished up quite recently. Do you want to um, give a plug to what you're doing now? I'm on two non-exec roles. Um, okay. I'm board on, on Matador as a non-exec director. Been there for about 12 months with a project in Canada. That's a really interesting early stage Greenfields project with a resource base on it already, a million ounces. That's in Newfoundland. Um, Ian Murray is the exec chair of, of that company. And I'm about to join the board or join the board of a proposed demerger encounter. I've got a 
mostly copper-focused company. They've got a gold project on the West Tanami. Uh, they're going to be demerging and floating that off and creating a new company, which will be Hamlin Gold. Yeah, okay. So pending shareholder approval and an IPO, I'll be a non-exec director of, of that company. Yeah, okay. So do you, uh, just to kind of finish the thought of, do you see yourself going back into major companies or bigger companies? I don't think I'll go back into major companies. I'm aiming to have a little bit of time off for the moment and probably go back into a an exec role on a on a more junior company. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And now can we talk about your timing of joining Gold Road? Yeah, which, the timing which... was quite interesting. So when I when I joined it was really and what attracted me to the role was it was a, an exploration manager for a junior company with a huge land package which mm-hmm. was essentially unexplored. And I thought to me the 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 opportunity to go and just do some good geology and have some freedom to kind of apply ideas and, and hopefully make a discovery was really what attracted me there. In between me doing the interview and, and signing on, it was about a three-week window then before I started. It's lucky enough that they drilled some RC holes, seven RC holes at Gruyere, and the day I started, 14th of October 2013, I still remember that day very clearly, was the day they announced the first drill results I see draw results for Gruyere, so timing was impeccable. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, so you couldn't first go- day on the job, we made a discovery. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, job done. Yeah, that's it. Um, so the I guess you kind of mentioned the fact that Carl, you can kind of talk about a little bit about this as well. Yeah, like I guess what separated Gold Road. Yeah, you, know, you kind of mentioned Justin. What separated that company, I guess, from other people is that they had this large tenement package and yeah, you know, and they were really going out to kind of explore really at kind of the edge of the world at that point yeah you know, they really kind of went out looking for this new kind of terrain you know although you came in right about the time when they'd obviously done a fair amount of that work can both of you guys kind of comment a little bit about how the company got to a point where you know it took on that challenge of going out and kind of exploring in what would be considered a very unknown part of of wa at that time yeah i, I can kick it off i mean I mean, when I started with Gold Road, like I was only going to work there for for six months and go back and do my honours at Curtin in sedimentology. Yeah. I was. Yeah. How's that plan going? <laughs> yeah, I, I might still go back. Pro- yeah, probably not though. But I had this yeah. wild idea that maybe petroleum geology was for me. A few months of working with Ziggy Lubinecki, I guess, kind of the chief geo geology spiritual leader and and one of the real pioneers of Yamana spending that time on the ground with a, a guy like Ziggy, this kind of creative exploration genius, me just being an uninformed, no idea what he was doing, young exploration GO. Very quickly we formed a friendship and Ziggy was a great mentor to a lot of us and he was like, don't, don't, don't go back and do your honours. Stay, stay here. <laughs> yeah. He's like, yeah, the worst decision you ever made. We'll, we'll make everyone rich, stay here. And it was Ziggy's, Ziggy's passion mixed with this great unexplored land package that really helped drive the business for a long time and he had this with this great team on the ground for a lot of us our first time in in the industry we had a big team of young fieldies and young geos so we mm-hmm. weren't we weren't a strong season team being a junior we didn't have a lot of procedures or systems so everything was pretty hand to mouth done pretty rough like like a lot of yeah. juniors we did to the best of our ability but we did use what we had and and did the best we could and Ziggy's one of Ziggy's big mantras was adapt and overcome. And he used to drive that all the time. And he had everyone wild on this idea that we could make a discovery. He he joined the company in the early days after the IPO. Russell Davis, who would put together the tenement package, it's ex-Sarco ground, and Russell mm-hmm. had worked for a Sarco. They wrapped up and wanted to get rid of the Yamana asset. Russell took all those leases, picked up a few more, repackaged it as Gold Road. And then later on, he's brought in this guy, Ziggy's. He's met him, he's heard about him, and he's bought this, this kind of gen- this 
this exploration guru, mad scientist guy, and, and it kind of couldn't have been a better fit because the ground really needed someone who's just eternally optimistic. Any hole could be a discovery hole and put us on the path to greatness. And Yamana had been long dismissed as undercover, pretty infertile, unlikely to host a big deposit. Yeah, and I guess that's uh, I guess the reason why I was asking this question is that you know for a long, long time it was considered to be the too hard basket. You're kind of taking fool's money to kind of go out and and work there because it's just not something that typical gold explorer should be doing in WA. I think that's exactly right. You know, it's an, it's a really interesting history, and it's in probably the history of a lot of the the pioneer gold belts or districts. Is mm-hmm. it takes a long time to find anything, and th- there's there's you know the notion of what what people know and and mindset, and it's just Yamana is is not a gold district. That's right. So there was a there was a, a pretty common view in Western Australia, mm-hmm. amongst especially amongst the kind of the established Yulgar geologists that yep. Yamana would not host large gold deposits. It had been explored from the early early 1970s, first for base metals. Mm-hmm. Gold was discovered in early 1980s. Um, Texas Gulf discovered the first gold. They were out there. Uh, that was on the Yamana property. And a number of big companies had been out there. So WMC had been out there when I was still working for WMC. Rowan Williams, who was, you know, set, ended up setting up Avoca and Dacian, he was out there as, a, as an exploration geologist. A lot of the WMC geologists quite liked it, but when WMC exited the gold business, they, they, they dropped that tenement. Probably the, the real pioneer was Russell Davis. So he, he had the tenement with Asako. Asako were a, an American company, copper-focused. Mm-hmm. Um, he basically put put together a big land package there for Asako. There was two other juniors out there at the time. Asako pulled out of Australia, and it was his vision to take the tenements from, it was Xanax and Yamana, and Australian Yamana Gold, and, and Asako, and put the whole package together that, and floated the company Yep. Gold Road, Alacra Mines at the time in 2006. Mm-hmm. So it was still a long time. So he'd been out there almost 10 years and he believed in it. 2006 through to 2013 was still seven years. So he had the vision to do that. They did a lot of work and Ziggy and the team did a lot of work and made some smaller discoveries along the way. And most of the work was where everyone had explored before along this golden highway trend. There's probably two real important factors in, in the discovery which in the discovery of Guerrero, which came out of the earlier work that they'd done. The first was they discovered Central Bore, tiny little deposit, but really high grade. And it was the first time any high grade had been discovered at, at Yamana. So all of a sudden you went That's from right, yeah. the whole industry saying, oh, nothing can be found out there to, oh, there's actually high grade. So everyone yep. kind of piqued people's interest. It became, you know, honestly, it was completely overvalued, maybe overspruked at to some point. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but... It allowed the company to raise some money, and that was probably the key point in the whole discovery and exploration history at Yamana, in my mm-hmm. view, was the money they used and raised. They realised that Central Bore wasn't big enough to do anything with, under 200,000 ounces, but it's not something that they could build a mine on. So Ian Murray and Ian, as the chairman, exec chair, and an accountant, I find this completely confounding yep that a, an accountant said right guys stop what you're doing we're going to step back and we're going to try and understand what is the real potential for for this belt it's no point us just drilling around this this same area over and over again it's like banging your head against a brick wall you're not going to go anywhere so he basically pulled back all the exploration activity with the money that they raised they flew detailed magnetics over the whole belt half a million dollar survey so a half million dollar survey for a company that didn't have much money was i think 
amazing, so brave, and then spent over over twelve months once they got that information on targeting. So they did hardly any work and went targeting mm-hmm. with a view to finding where can we go to find big world class deposits. Funny you make this point that yeah, when I was kind of doing research and I was looking through kind of the history of releases from Gold Road, it's it's quite unusual to find this gap in kind of reporting that happened because you know there was this corporate kind of shift from that point because it's a story that's not often uh, followed all the way through. You know, like companies feel like central bore or whatever they have is kind of the best shot. So they'll just persevere until you kind of find you know something. But it was interesting to see that if you just follow the company from its releases point of view, you know, there, there seemed to be this kind of corporate shift to go. Now we're not going to go. Yeah, you know, we'll park Central Bore for X amount of time, yeah. and then we'll go to something else. And then yeah, you know, if we don't find anything there, then you know the writing's kind of on the wall, anyways. And then we all move on. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Super brave, a huge, hugely brave decision. Yeah. You know, and they got pretty short on cash. They got down to probably less than a million dollars. They were able to raise raise some money in an SPP, so mm-hmm. a, a share, you know, Purchase rights, plans, basically yeah. a rights issue. Raised not much more than a million dollars. And there was quite a few sort of just private high net worth individuals that put money in. And it was really on the back of that that they then went and were able to drill two two targets. Done all this work, they came up, came up with about 84 drill targets on the back of this targeting mm-hmm. exercise, which took nearly 18 months. Drilled two targets, so... Yam 14 and, and Yam Fort 13 or Gruyere were the two targets that they went and drilled. And that was partly, this is where luck comes into it to some extent. And I always say, you know, all, all discoveries have some element of, of luck or element of serendipity. This was the serendipitous moment was they were on the middle of the tenement holding, which was on the pastoral lease, which was owned by, by Gold Road. The rest of the tenement's all on Aboriginal reserve land, which just takes longer to access to get get the land access yep, sorted out. Right, yep. So there was two targets that had land access sorted out, so the decision was made to, to go and test those two targets with some air core and rab drilling, and it just turns out that those two targets ended up being mineralised. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Kyle, going on that point, you were in the company at that time. Did you feel the same kind of shift that Justin's talking about? Yes, definitely. It was, I mean... We love putting out announcements and we, during that big boom, we were trying to do as much as possible to spruik the projects we had and, and drive Central Bore and the Attila and Alara projects, which are now renamed as the Golden Highway, plus all our other explorations. Because so it is to, important to make that point that, you know, this was still the, the tail end of that 2005 right. to 2010 boom, which, you know, arguably, you know, led to a lot of companies doing, you know, things that they probably shouldn't have and all of that stuff. I guess that... The gold price crashing and mm-hmm. the end of that boom, kind of late 2012, kind of forced our hand. We, we were going to do the magnetic survey and the targeting that came with it, but it really forced our change in habit from just going drill crazy. Mm-hmm. We had rigs at Yamana yep. all year round, and we just went from project to project to project. We get a bit of an anomaly. Assays had come back, get a sniff, mm-hmm. rigs would go back, and we just kind of circled the wagon like that for a few years, but never really landed that new discoveries so yep. while the market downturn was was tough for the business and we almost did run out of money and we had to let go of a lot of people at the start of 2013 which made it really a really tough time we were a close-knit little group as mm-hmm. it's always been a bit of a family vibe up at Yamana and Justin mentions the the pastoral lease the, the Yamana camp's always been called an exploration camp but it's probably it's more of a farm station and we did have cattle for a while we had <laughs> 200 head of Brahmin cross drought masters so mm-hmm. these kind of gold exploring cowboys <laughs> wannabes anyway 
but that change in market conditions mean we we just couldn't keep doing what we're doing. So getting this amazing new aeromagnetic data set and then all these targets generated by some industry specialists from mm-hmm. different disciplines suddenly gave us a framework to go forth and kind of do what we've been doing with the same energy and excitement and passion. I guess just what we didn't have was the budget for drilling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That forced our hand again. It's pretty hard for pretty hard for Ziggy. Like he he loved drilling. It's the it's the ultimate test. He loves drilling and then loves getting the, the G chemistry back from it. And that's that, that was all he needed. That and, and two meals a day. So we no we no drill budget, and only a budget for two thousand soil samples, which which we found mildly insulting. <laughs> we kind of went out with our own like hand built trailer mounted auger rig. This gnarly old yellow thing. Someone had welded the torque control like shut so it was, you could kind of get to a point in your auger hole and <laughs> you had to commit or were you going to lose your screw. And we, we set forth and just started testing some of these new targets within the pastoral lease. We could actually get out there. It wasn't that far of a drive from camp. And, you know, the start of 20, as I mentioned, like we'd had to let go of a lot of our exploration staff. So when I say we're going and doing this work, sometimes it was the one of the two senior fieldies who kept their jobs. Sometimes mm-hmm. it was the pastoralist mm-hmm. who liked doing it because he wanted to be out of the cattle yard waiting for the to the cows to come home. Yep. Or or myself, you know, we out of all the all that land package, sometimes there'd be three of us there for two weeks. So whoever could get on the levers of the auger and go and get some samples per day and test these test these projects. We we just did what we did and fortunately and as Justin's said, luck took us to, to Yam fourteen and then up to Yam thirteen or the Yam thirteen Redox target and the Gruyere structural target. They were they'll end up being pretty good targets to go after. They were, mm-hmm. they weren't the best targets in the in what we generated. They were just targets available to us. But we'd always liked that area geologically. A lot of lot of work through between two thousand ten and two thousand twelve there. A lot mm-hmm. of close space rab drilling and a bit of RC. Yep. And never really came up with much. So let me put it this way: if someone had told me at the start of twenty thirteen we We've just had to let go of a bunch of our staff and mates, and everyone's feeling pretty sad about it. Markets died. Ian's telling us we can't raise cash. You've got no drill budget. Don't stuff up and go and find the next big one. If someone had told me there and then that we would have put 54 RC holes into a project in the Dorothy Hills Greenstone Belt, that uh, would have been yeah. the best joke going around that day anyway. And I think you were quite clear in saying that, you know, because of the way the company was set up, you as a technical team, you know, maybe you were put to the fire a little bit more about, you know, like, is this really something that we should be drilling? Or, you know, like, can you come up with something better? Or, you know, like, work things up more? Having been through that kind of 2005-2010 boom, you know, that level of technical discipline on how you should actually work things out, you know, like it was kind of lost by the time the end of the boom was coming around because, you know, there was so much money, people were so hungry to do stuff that you were just doing whatever you could because, you know, that illusion of, of progress of work looked better than actually, you know, taking the, the view that, oh, we should sit back and really figure out whether this is the stuff we want to do or not. Yeah, we, we didn't have that time up our sleeves to sit back and review it for three months. We were yeah. going to... We had to propose to the board that we were going to advance this project and, and test the mineralisation at, at depth. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's that's a challenge of exploring Yamana. It's it's undercover, but it's predominantly stripped weathering profile. So there are areas where you know shallow shallow exploration drilling can only take you so far before mm-hmm. you need to to put some deeper holes in it and, and yeah. RC and 
and we loved drilling RC <laughs> at the time. We so it was <laughs> we kind of had the initial anomaly from Gruyere and Yamp fourteen, and we tried to drill some deeper rab holes in Gruyere and just got nowhere. And seven eight meters, the hole was going to refuse it. It it was it was not much of a push for Ziggy and I to come up with a few two yeah, drill RC. lines of RC holes to yep. to give it a go, and we just had to. Fortunately, we had the directors coming to site. Ziggy kind of got Russell Davis around the corner before we presented our ideas and said, you know, we're, we're going to drill these holes. Yeah. Just, just give us the thing to left. Yeah, just, just give us a thumbs up. Yeah. And we'll go and do it. And mm-hmm. if it works out, it'll be great. And if it doesn't, well, I was for certain if they if they didn't come back with the goods, that was that was it, I'd be packing my bag, you know. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Justin, have you ever talked to Ian about what precipitated that kind of change in in the company uh vision or you know like why did he decide that, that was a good time for for the company to kind of you know take stock of what they were doing and kind of condense it to some you know kind of a few important things that they should do it was probably almost uh it was a brave decision but it was almost a, a last throw of the dice really they had to find something which was substantial he knew you know they they could have done what a lot of what a lot of Aussie juniors do, which is find something, find something small, build a mill on it straight away, yep. start the mill up, two years down the track you realise, oh, we shouldn't have done that, and you go broke. And yep. that's happened time and time and time again. And he was canny enough and smart enough to realise that's not something he wanted to do and they had to do something to to make, really make a company and he had a vision of wanting to make a, a company and leave a legacy. Ian always talked about leaving a legacy for the traditional owners. That was something that he always had really, really mm-hmm. sort of for, forefront in his mind is leaving a legacy and not, not leaving something terrible. In his view, it was the only way that they could really make the company and leave a legacy was to find something big. Yep. And that was, in his view, the only way they were going to do it. So, you, you know, so we kind of like talked about the time, you know, coming up to the, the RC program that led to the discovery of Gruyere. That was also the time that you joined the company. Do you remember what, you know, like coming into this company, obviously that's a fantastic time to come in. You timed it really well. Uh, you know, like what did you kind of see the challenges when you when you walked into a place like that? Yeah, like do you kind of remember like walking into the role? Like what were the things that you immediately kind of thought of that this is what we got to focus on otherwise it could kind of get out of hand here? Yeah, look, um, when I accepted the job and we hadn't discovered Greer at that point, mm-hmm. we are just doing a little bit of, they were just, you know, out there doing a little bit of rab and, and all yep. the drilling. I thought it was I was going to be stepping in and 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 doing a lot of targeting work, and I knew that budget was going to be fairly limited. And yep. I started on a, you know, it was it was a pretty small salary, and I said mm-hmm. to Ian, you know, I'm I'm much more focused on options and salary. Give me some options, and uh, yep. so I, I was putting a lot of sort of my own IP at risk. Mm-hmm. But literally, I walked in on the Monday morning, start my first day, and Ian gave me the release that they just put out. I hadn't seen up to that point. He yep. said, we've just discovered these holes. You're the exploration manager. What do we do next? Because <laughs> we don't know. Because <laughs> I'd never discovered anything substantial. <laughs> yeah. So I literally looked at this and, he, and there was sort of, you know, one of the other geos had proposed, there was two, two lines of drilling 400 metres apart. Mm-hmm. And there was an idea that they were going to go and infill drill between these two lines of drilling. Mm-hmm. And you could look at it and it was two lines of drilling Mineralisation was really shallow, two, two or three metres below surface on one mm-hmm. of them. The footprint was over 100 metres wide, so there was low-grade mineralisation over 100 metres wide yep. and really shallow. And I just thought, you know, we need to 
I had a, a background in a lot of resource development. I've worked at mines. I've built projects. Sort of probably my speciality is um, resource development and understanding geology. First and foremost, thing that you always want to do is understand understand your geology and and the big picture. So I immediately said, no, we need to understand what we've got here. So probably within half an hour of starting, I was on the phone. We had one geologist on site, which is Kyle. <laughs> um, I rang him up. I said, I still remember this call. I rang him up. I said, Kyle, you don't know me. I'm your new boss. I'm Justin. <laughs> Those holes that you're about to go and mark out, stop that right now. Plan some holes 200 metres to the north and some holes 200 metres to the south, 40 metres apart or 60 metres apart, however, 50 metres apart. Um, plan up those two sections and get drilling. And if you find anything, step out another 200 metres. And the next day we were drilling extensional holes 200 metres to the north of, of the discovery line. Then I was up the next week, up on site, and it was I sat down and looked through all the chips because um, you were out looking after the rig, so I sat down and looked through all the chips. I had a an old binocular microscope which I'd managed to sort of somehow <laughs> get from WMC somewhere when I left. Yeah, um, yeah. Took There's it up a few pieces of those equipment floating around. Yeah, so I that's took all. it up with me in my, in my backpack. I looked through all the chips and realised it was different to what they'd interpreted. You could see it was an intrusive, definitely an intrusive, which was unusual. It had arsenopyrite and pyrotide in there, um, which was unusual. So we kind of realised this is this is not what, they'd originally interpreted. Yep. And it was something far more substantial and we need to understand how big this thing is. And we just said about that for the next the next few weeks. But I was basically just given free reign by Ian to just do what had to be done. And I did. Yep. And we did. And the team did. Weeks later we had one point eight kilometers of strike drilled out to hundred <laughs> meters on a broad framework and knew we had something substantial. So the reason why I asked that question is because I think in the pre-interview notes you sent me, Kyle, you you were quite uh, clear in the fact that Justin came in at the right time. Yeah, that because you guys were a essentially an exploration company, you needed someone to come in with that mindset about pushing you. Now that you had a discovery, you needed to be pushed in kind of a different direction. Uh, absolutely. I guess when Justin started, the, the few of us were out there were a little bit nervous. We'd Ian had kind of sent an email about this this new exploration manager, big company experience. Some of us knew a, knew a little bit about Goldfields and Western Mining Corp, but kind of come from that fraternity and that Justin was kind of a big deal. So we were a little bit nervous, but very quickly there's this nice guy on site who had a plan and worked with us and and just set us forth to do what we do. There was no no ambiguity, supported us in, mm-hmm. in what we needed to do and I guess, as Justin said, coming from that resource development and, and operational background, that's something we hadn't had in-house really inside the business up until that point. So a lot of us didn't really know what a resource drill out looked or felt like. Just to have that that technical and, I guess, kind of spiritual guidance through it and to, and to continue driving it forward. Yeah, and I think, yeah, like, um, I mean, the part that I find interesting about that is that there, there are moments where you need... Uh, you, know, you, you need people that are really good at looking at kind of the detail on a small scale, but you then need someone to kind of come in and ask you to look on a bigger scale. Um, and, you know, like uh, and I personally find that I think a lot of these kind of discovery stories have those, you know, those type of people that seem to come in at the right time. You know, like the person that put the tenement package together, you know, they obviously had a bigger view rather than just a small view of the company that was, you know, dropping a single tenement was. 
Uh, you know, Ian obviously had the view that you know we should now go from s- something small to something big, and I think there's always these kind of moments where you know you need someone to kind of give you that perspective, and that allows you to kind of grow it a little bit more. Absolutely, I think you need a whole, you need that sort of eclectic mix of sort of thoughts and 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 people and personalities to make a really make a discovery and 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 turn a discovery into a mine, and which is mm-hmm. what we're able to do eventually, but. Diversity of thought is is critical, and I think yeah, like the more I think the complicated the problem, you know, like you need people, you know, you need people with a skill set of kind of Ziggy, who's you know passionate but perhaps very detail oriented about you know consumed by data, and you need people that have the the opposite view of that. Well, you know, like let's look at areas that doesn't have data. How do we add data into those areas? And you need this kind of interplay, otherwise. I think trying to solve a complicated problem is, is quite tough. I think. I guess Justin brought a brought a fresh energy as we've kind of touched on. The 2013 was tough for the team out there. It had been really draining. We we didn't know it at any point in the swing could be could be the end of our role or or the business. And we had a few little wins going on. We'd, we'd signed JV for South Yaman with Sumitomo, but having Justin come in just after some time off, but with all his experience, he kind of helped reinvigorate us and. That plus the these kind of or really the most exciting results I, I'd seen at Yamana and mm-hmm. in my time was kind of really helped relight the fire under all of us. And mm-hmm. at that point, by the end of the year, we were I don't really know how to put it. We were just end of the year was a buzz. Oh, it was it was it huge. Was yes, no one was working a set roster. Everyone was working. We still had a tiny team. Yep, and everyone was just doing whatever we whatever we could to to get it done to the the best of our ability and. That felt great. By the time Christmas come around and we drove some of our old newts back to Perth for their <laughs> annual service and and scrub, we were, we were all knackered, but gee, it was exciting. Like everyone mm-hmm. couldn't wait for Christmas break to get, to be over and to get back straight back into it in 2014. It's a funny yeah. story about that Christmas break because every, every year the company took a Christmas break and had a mm-hmm. drilling break because it's too hot to drill in the summer. It really is. You yep. know, middle of summer, middle of January up there, 45 degrees plus. It's just... Mm-hmm. It's not fair to put people under that sort of those conditions. So we always generally finished sort of a week or two before Christmas and have sort of four to six weeks off and start sort of in, in February sometime. And we had probably only 13 to 15 people in the company and we had our Christmas party. So we had that booked at old um, the old Italian restaurant on, on Outram Street, I can't remember what it's called. So we had the Christmas party booked and we had the whole team there and in the morning, just before we got there, we got the final batch of assays come through for the last hole we drilled, which Kyle drilled. And I mentioned he drilled it because he, he stopped it in awe. <laughs> so we got we got the best uh, the best hole that we had probably. Yep. The furthest northernmost hole, which gave us about 1,600 metres of strike or something. I can't remember the, the result. It was, I think, 13 GYRC 0026 or something like that was the hole number. And it was about 30 metres at three and a half grams. Mm-hmm. And it ended in awe. Yep. And that was by far the best hole we had. So we had mm-hmm. to rush out and put an ASX release out for the next day in the middle of doing the party and the Christmas yep. lunch. That's how we ended the year was on that, that draw result. Yeah, but yeah, Carl stopped the holes just because that was the carrot that encouraged people to come back to, to start working. Yeah, yeah so you got right to tantalise them into the new year, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, no one's going to walk away from that. So yeah. I, I still challenge Ian Murray to this day, and I hope he listens to this to... I'd happily go through that chip tray with him, and yep. he, he can pick that end hole. It was pretty, pretty sheared contact. It was, um, <laughs> no, 
Very difficult to put your finger on that part of the. It's okay. Body, to but yeah, it's, it's I'm, okay to I'm, let it go, Carl. I'm, I'm, okay I'm not holding on to it, but yeah. yeah. We extended the hole after Christmas and got about another 30 metres, I think. Yeah. yeah. So it was, yeah. Uh, you knew what you were doing. Yeah, yeah, was, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but that, the interesting thing, that gave us a good break. Funny thing, over that break, typical of, of Ziggy, he sort of, he doesn't stop for no man. You know, <laughs> he doesn't stop for Christmas. So over the Christmas break, he went and took the results and he put together a, a first pass, pretty rough resource model. So we could sort of get an idea of what we might have. Yeah, wow. And at that point, he came back after Christmas and a first pass, pretty rough resource model, which he did in Micromine, came back at about a million ounces. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, wow, you know, this is really... And it was open everywhere. It was open at depth and still yep. open long strike. So we knew at that point, yeah, we've got to start drilling and drilling more aggressively. And started off 2014 on a, on a pretty good note. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, so obviously you know, that was kind of the early results and, and what happened from that point on, you know, you guys obviously went from a million ounce resource to five and a half, whatever we got to at the end. Probably the critical point. So from, it was that, that point then, so from early 2014, we didn't have any, any diamond holes into it. We drilled about 50 RC holes and mm-hmm. drilled a framework to about maybe 120 or 150 metres deep or something. But we still didn't know what it really looked like. We didn't know how deep it was. So First thing we planned was we got a got a diamond contract in, Terra drilling out of Kalgoorlie. They came in and we planned up four or five diamond holes to drill in as soon as we got back in January. Um, and they were all reasonably deep and, and kind of drilled down across the ore body to try and sort of get some sort of idea of continuity and depth. Yeah, to get as good an image of the ore body as Absolutely. you possibly can. Yeah, and yeah. just sort of size potential. And those holes were critical. The first diamond hole we got back, Remember, oh, wow. it was like 180 metres at, at one and a half grams and it hit a high-grade load in it, sort mm-hmm. of five metres at 20 grams or something. So we realised that was potential for high-grade and, and it yep. was extending deeper than we thought. And we got a good look at the mineralisation. So f- on the back of that and some more RC drilling we did, so by probably mid-February, the RIU conference. RIU in Perth is, is great. It's always kind of a good – it's a good stage to kind of – yeah, get like information out early in the year, and so, so it was really done enough by that point. We drilled some diamond holes. Everything we were drilling just kept hitting mineralisation. Mm-hmm. So we we did our first capital raise on the back of Gruyere, probably about fifteen million dollars or so, at about seventeen cents. And then on the back of that, that was to raise money to do the first resource drill out. So we planned up the resource drill out. It was about thirty five thousand metres of drilling, yeah, RC well. and diamond. We planned that up. We started that at the end of March. We ramped up. Amazing. We ramped up from, I think we had about 16 people on site. We ramped up from 16 to 64 people on site <laughs> in two weeks. We went from two drill rigs to eight drill rigs. Um, we got on board. I just went out and got us, we needed people to help supervise. So I got um, a safety person I knew, Helen Anderson, who I'd worked with at Goldfields. Yep. She, I got her on board to run the safety Um Another mate who was running a geological services business, I got him to come up and run kind of the, the activity on site, just make sure we're doing it all sort of efficiently and effectively. Yep. So he handled more the logistics side. He basically was logistics manager, yep. sort of, while I managed stuff down in Perth. Mm-hmm. We got a resource geo on another guy I worked with at, at Goldfields, John Donaldson. He came on board to start doing all the resource modelling. Mm-hmm. Fantastic job, probably one of the best resource geos out there. So we really were able to really start bringing in some talent. We got a heap of 
contract geos from BMGS. Um, it was huge. We had caravans all over the place and we had drillers all over the place and people all over the place. Yep. Um, the interesting thing was we didn't have a safety incident in the whole thing. Everybody just did their job. They knew what they were doing. They were well managed and motivated. And I went up and sort of at the start of it and every couple of weeks went up and kind of just gave information updates on what we were doing to the to the mm-hmm. team up there and spent time up there. I was on the back of also raising money with Ian and running stuff in Perth. And we literally did 35,000 metres of drilling in about two months. We had all of the assays back by the end of May. Set a deadline for the team. I said, we're going to do all of this. We're going to get the, the assays back by the end of May because we want to get a resource done that we can announce it, obviously, at Diggers and Dealers. Yep. As you do. Yeah. yeah. And, and we did it. When we got all of that done. Mm-hmm. I think we ended up drilling about from start to finish from the discovery. There was probably... 50-odd thousand metres of drilling. Um, and we announced uh, the maiden resource in at Diggers and Dealers, 3.8 million ounces, nine months after we just drilled the first drill hole. Yeah, wow. So, you, so you've done a pretty good job of kind of uh, leading me into the question that I did want to ask you is essentially around how did the company change in that time? So, you know, so you're obviously an explorer with very few people. You know, the resource base in that company was very low. And you had to go through this process of where the company you know, exponentially grows to a much bigger entity. I think that's maybe a, a thing that people understand that you know, if you go from X number of rigs to you know, X plus whatever number of rigs, uh, how did the, the, like the corporate culture in the company have to change along that way? You know, you, you're obviously an exploration company. Now you're becoming more of a, you know, a company that's possibly on the development path. So what were other things like around the company from a culture point of view that, that had to kind of change along as well? I think... Immediately, we were just always an exploration company, but we knew mm-hmm. we had something. So probably for the first couple of years, it was, we're explorers, and until we understand how big this is, yep. we want to stay explorers. But we did bring in, we did bring in some, a bit more technical, probably only fairly late, you know, probably it was only 2015 where we started doing the studies. So 2014, we did scoping study at the t- end of 2014 on the back of the first resource. Yep. We did all of that in-house. Gordon Murray was our engineer. He, he basically ran that. Mm-hmm. Then it was really on the back of the scoping study and started 2015 where we started growing and that's where everything started growing. Probably one of the things, step back just one little bit, um, probably one of the criti- probably the biggest learnings I've ever had at, at Goldfields and the last role I had at Goldfields where I was in a strategy role looking at the entire exploration project business, mm-hmm. which was global business we had exploration operations all over the planet we were doing five five studies prefix you know scoping studies up to feasibility studies yep. on on large scale you know up to 10 billion dollar sort of yep. what might have been projects so one of the things i was asked to do was understand what what makes a project work what makes a project successful so i did a, spent a lot of time on studying studies and what works and what didn't work and the key finding of that was if you're going to do a study, it doesn't matter how big or small, don't ever miss a stage or a step of your study. Do your concept study, do your scoping study, go into pre-fees, but make sure you've got option studies in the pre-fees. So don't try to get shortcuts, don't which is shortcut. what I like. Don't yep. ever shortcut. If you ever look at all the projects yep. around that, that mess up, that, they miss stages. Yeah, I think that's a surefire so way of burning money. Yeah, so we set out to make sure that we, we did every stage, the study process. And that probably got Tim Natcher on, on board. Mm-hmm. who'd built projects. When we started the studies, he got a study, an old bloke, Robert Marshall, who'd built projects all over the place as, mm-hmm. as an advisor. So we started building up that technical capacity. 
Robin then got Sim Lau in to run the studies. And we ran all of those studies in parallel to continuing to explore and explore effectively. So, you know, nine months later, we had five and a half million ounces and we had a pre-feasibility study completed. And that obviously, then we knew that we were going to become a a developer. And that's when things really started. We started adding further to the team and bringing in the environmental permitters and metallurgists and so the the question I, I always want to ask people is that you know there's always this phase you know you're an explorer and then you become a developer and there's a different skill set on the exploration side there's a different skill set on the development side so a company like gold road which had this ethos of exploration kind of being the driver that adds value how do you maintain that when you get to a point where you're becoming a development company does it become harder? You know, like how how do you, as the I guess the technical person or the person in charge of maintaining that ethos of what your kind of growth DNA is, how do you maintain that when you get to a point where you're a developer? My view is with the team and especially an exploration team is just continually focus on just technical excellence. It doesn't matter how you know you can put all the processes in place and and all the, the company bureaucracies in place and have systems and all of that but never lose and that always happens as a company grows Mm -hmm. that's what happens you put in process you put in systems and inevitably will bring bureaucracy and everything else yeah Yeah, but you need like you know if you're a company of four people and if you're a company of a hundred people you're gonna have to have some processes because it's pretty hard to manage a hundred people right but just don't lose sight of two things don't lose sight of probably three things don't lose sight of Technical excellence and technical excellence for exploration geos is geology. Never lose sight of the f- of why we're there. It's to understand geology. Never stop being curious. You always want to be your geos to be curious and positive, and don't stop having fun. <laughs> you know, as soon as you stop having fun, then you got to look at why. The interesting thing for for Gold Road was we became a developer, but we became a developer through a slightly non-conventional that's true path. Yeah. We were honestly fully expecting to develop the project ourselves. We had project approved, uh, bank approved finance. Mm-hmm. So we had $400 million of, of bank approved finance ready to go. I'd been on the road on roadshows for basically 18 months and we had had the instos basically set up. So we could have funded it through debt and equity quite mm-hmm. comfortably. In parallel to all of that, we also ran a joint venture process. And at the end of the day, at the end of 2016, when we'd finished the pre or the feasibility study and yep. had a good project, we also had an offer on the table for a joint venture, which, funnily enough, was with with Goldfield, who so I'd yep. previously worked for. Yep. And we chose to go down the the JV path. So we became a developer, but with another company basically building the project. Yeah. So one of the questions I always wanted to ask is: Did you consciously look for the joint venture path, or did, was that a approach made to your company like did you did you see the joint venture path as a feasible outcome for your company and you already constructed that kind of outcome or was it that someone came to you and you went actually that's a pretty good fit for us no we, we set you know through our, our sort of i guess strategy workshops and sessions and and with the board sort of two probably two years earlier we realized there's going to be two ways to build the project build it ourselves or jv and we're not going to settle on one of those paths we're going to focus on assessing both of those and find out you know come to what is the best solution for the company to develop the project and the most risk-free way of developing the project did you get any pushback from your investors going down the jv path it was really interesting sort of through that stage through all that like leading up to that we you know right from early 2016 we told 
all the investors. We were looking at all options. Nothing was off the table. We were going to look for, you know, doing it ourselves. And we told them we were running a joint venture process and that mm-hmm. was, was well known. The investors were, as investors always are, you can never you can never satisfy all your investors. <laughs> yep. All the institos, one thing I've learned, you know, institutions are only out there for one thing and that's for themselves and yep. for their own money. And you understand that. So you've got to... As a company and as a as a director and as a board, you have to do what's right for the company and what you think is right for the company on behalf of all the shareholders. Listen to all the all the investors, listen to all the institutions, and they've all got great ideas. So take on board what they say and and filter out what you think is going to be best for your company. There were instos out there that thought, yep, JV would be a, a, a great option. There were some that didn't want to have a bar of it. When we finally did it and when the deal was announced, almost all of the instos congratulated us on, on, on the deal that we we did Yeah, because it was kind of a win-win for, for everybody, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, like the path that you guys took is probably the path that, you know, from, a, from an investor point of view, de-risked, you know, your, that risk of you guys going alone. You know, the risk that really becomes is if the project gets bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, like for a small company to appropriately scale their resources to try to meet that, you know, becomes a lot harder. Yeah, you know, whereas a, a company like Goldfields, you know, that's that's their jam. This is what they do. So, you know, so why wouldn't you leverage their expertise as much as you could in that space? That's exactly right. Yeah, we had a, we had a plan, obviously, for operational readiness and a whole big plan to yeah. do that. But that would have been a, a huge job that, we basically didn't have to do because Goldfields had had it all there already. They had the operation, they had the systems, they had mm-hmm. the operational know-how. Yep. Um, the construction was obviously we're all all learning somewhat because it's not many com- no no companies have construction teams. Mark Clark with Regis and yep. Capricorn has kind of got a team that they've stuck together and done it regularly. But yep. general companies and large companies don't have construction teams anymore. So yeah, construction right. starts kind of from from scratch and i think what i you know like from obviously an outsider what i like about that perspective is that the strategic decision about what you do is more around what you don't want to do either as well yeah so it's not always that yeah like we like you know these are the things that we have to do it's like well actually these are the things we shouldn't do either and how do you kind of weigh that uh that decision making really so yeah and i think sometimes yeah, you know, like we kind of think that there's only one path, but I, I think, you know, like companies should be a little bit more innovative and go, well, you know, like what what's our best kind of value proposition here? You know, our best value proposition is in these kind of three things. So when the bulk of the work is starting to move into these things where our value proposition isn't, you know, maybe we should not go into that space or look for a partner or do something yeah. a little bit different in that yeah. sense. Look, that, that's exactly right. And it was an interesting time when we were, Doing all the studies and looking at how we're going to build because there were some, there were a few successful projects that that had happened and been built, but largely there were a lot of projects globally which had been built very unsuccessfully, and we were we were continually kind of compared to <laughs> projects. I'm not going to name any of them, yeah, but we were compared to some projects. There was there was a couple in Canada that were were disastrous. Yeah, epic blew companies up. Yep. Yep. There were a couple in in Perth that we in, in WA that. W- were happening at the same time as us that we were yep. always compared to. Yep, came on just ahead of us, and both of them, both of them failed. Yep, and I think partly because they missed stages in their studies. Mm-hmm. Um, 
one thing that we were very aware of and wary of was just taking on a big chunk of debt mm-hmm. and something going wrong during the study or during the build, having some sort of cost overrun because we could see you know, 2013 to 2015 or 16, it was it was a fantastic environment to be doing studies. Yep. Things just started increasing in price. If we had a built, even us, if we had a built a year later, probably would have, you know, estimates of people probably would have added 50 to 100 million minimum. So if we had any cost overrun uh, as, a, as a junior with a big chunk of debt and we would have been going back to the market and raising at, at significant discount. That's right. And as it happened, um, we did have uh, a cost overrun on the project um, for a variety of reasons. But fortuitously for us as, as Gold Road, we'd built a cost overrun facility into the joint venture mm-hmm. and the joint venture partner paid for most of the cost overrun. Yep. Um, so we were, you know, there was a whole lot of those mechanisms that were built that yep. – it was a fantastic deal for us. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Um, so, so the obvious question I'll ask: uh, If you had to do it again, would you do anything different? I often, you know, you often look back and you look at how how the mine is operating now and running now, and you think, oh, geez, it would be nice to have all that yourself, <laughs> and not fifty fifty. Yeah, but whether you could have built it yourself. Um, on the exploration project side, the development side. I don't know if I would have changed much. It was yeah, okay. it it ran like clockwork, mm-hmm. quite fortuitously, but it ran like clockwork just because there was a bunch of awesome people working on it that just didn't stop and they would just do anything t- to get the job done on at the time. I think you made this point, Carl, in our kind of a pre-interview stuff that the busts are a good time to explore because it you know it forces you to you know be a little bit leaner in how you how you do things. But, you know, also I think, you know, possibly going through kind of a, a development cycle in a bust is actually probably a much better outcome than trying to go through a boom where, you know, you have uh, people retention problems, you know, labor costs are going up, you know, basically any cost of yours is, you know, always kind of increasing at, at some uh, component. So, so, you know, so from that point of view, you know, the, the timing of perhaps when you were actually trying to facilitate this project, aside from the capital side, which is the real problem in kind of a bust. The people we brought in to the maiden resource drill out all the way through to some of the feasibility studies, that, that bust meant that there were people with great experience building big open pit operations looking for work. Yep. You know, Right now, that'd be really hard to get that select team together. And yep. even thinking about some of the experience of the exploration GOs, fieldies, specialist consultants, and even some of the drillers we had up at Gruyere in those early days are primed to kind of have a really good run at it. And mm-hmm. it couldn't have been any better. We'd, we'd never had so many people on site. As Justin said, there were just kind of caravans and ablutions <laughs> everywhere. It wasn't, a, wasn't easy at times. Like the camp was felt overrun, but everyone was just there to do the same job and working really hard at it. And it was such good fun. I, I don't think I'll ever, ever work in a drilling program as, as fun as that. And, you know, still a lot of mates out of that. And we got it done in a really short time time frame. I think it'd be hard to, maybe those crews of people still exist now. And if we were to go and drill out tomorrow, we could still put it together. But I don't know, it just felt yeah. like an absolute dream team. It was. I don't, you couldn't do it. Yeah. Now, what it was, it was absolute. It, we, 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 we had the perfect window to do this in terms yeah. of it, as you mentioned, it was kind of the bus time. 
And we did from start to finish, from the discovery through to the end of the feasibility study, the whole thing, start to finish, cost $27 million to get to a 3.5 million ounce reserve and 6.5 million ounce resource. So yeah. that's it's less than $3 an ounce to resource, start to finish. Yeah, that's so, unheard of. Uh, it, it's way unheard of. You know? yeah. Even Hemi and DeGray is fantastic, but they're discovering resources at $10 an ounce. We discovered the main resource was $1.60 an ounce, and that's because it's fantastic ore body, but um, we were able to get all the drillers we needed at, at the drop of a hat. Mm-hmm. Assay turnaround was probably a week and a half. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're getting, you know, you're routinely getting sort of weeks to months assay turnarounds now. That's right. Yep. We were able to go from, you know, that ramp up. We were able to get like 10 or 15 geos on site at the drop of a hat. All the resources and extraordinary skills were available um, to us. And it was just it was just the absolute perfect timing to do something like this. Right now, you you know, we're back to where we were sort of late two thousands. You can't get drills very easily. That's right. Assay turnarounds are terrible. Yep. Wages are, are sort of booming again. Yep. Um, it was just there's no way could you do what we did as cheaply and as efficiently and as quickly as we did it. And I think you know, like to me, the the kind of the lesson out of that ends up being is that when you don't have that pressure, that cost pressure, whatever that cost pressure is, you know, whether it's labor, time. Uh, you know, assays, anything like that. You know, what it allows you to do is to make timely decisions. You know that, you know, because right now there's so many kind of complications in the process. You know, like labs are running behind. Yeah, uh, drilling crews are hard to find. All of that stuff. You know, that inevitably makes it really hard for you to put that. You know, all of those cogs in a way that will allow you to give the information that you need to kind of make the decisions as you go along. Yeah. You know, when you remove that aspect, I think you know the fact that you can get information in a timely manner possibly allows you to be you know make better decisions, right? Because you're not always kind of waiting for something, and you're not always kind of trying to fight the the tide in some way to kind of get you know what information you need. Yeah, that's right. As an industry, you know, sometimes we kind of look at these, you know, projects that don't go right and maybe we don't quite talk about the aspect that, you know, like sometimes, you know, it's that like, you know, like Swiss cheese model. You just need kind of the things to line up. And if one of them slightly out, you know, like maybe we don't quite comprehend how big an impact it can actually have on that whole process. Yeah. I think the ability, the, the importance of having good quality people and technical people as well and yeah. And it was kind of chaotic at the time. But I mentioned, you know, we didn't, we had no safety incidents at all. But that was probably because of the quality of the, the drillers and the drill supervisors. That's and, right. Yep. You know, three or four years later at, at, at Gold Road, we probably had, were having more safety incidents than what we had during that, that chaotic time, despite mm-hmm. having systems and processes in place. Yep. But it's probably because the quality and the experience of the drillers and the people on site is far less. That's right. Despite yep. having all of the systems in place. Yep. You know, we had really good quality drillers and supervisors and they knew what to do despite mm-hmm. sort of what appeared to be a fairly chaotic environment with people running around doing lots and lots of work. That's it right. It was fantastic. I mean, if you think about kind of an environment where you should have, you know, possibly safety incidents and things like that, you know, that would be the archetypical example that people would, you know, like talk about doing things or doing a lot of things in a short amount of time. Yeah, yeah you would expect things. But, you know, like that's a great point that the fact that you didn't have them. I mean, being on the ground at that time, we'd had this really cool group of drillers we'd worked with for years. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, we've got all these new geological consultants, technical consultants, all these contract fieldies, and drillers we've never worked with before. We had 
few different companies to make up the rig volume under different kind of subcontracts and banners. And it kind of felt like something was, something should have gone wrong. Guys not getting on, too competitive, just driving back and forward, you know, Gruyere to Yamana's not a, it's a leisurely 45 minute drive on a pretty dusty, Terrible sandy road. road. Yep. Um, when you're driving there in the morning, you're looking directly into the rising sun. And when you're driving home, you're looking directly into the setting sun. So yeah. ideal when you've got eight rigs worth of team and, and fieldies and people coming back from work and, and heading to. And it just couldn't have gone any better. The competition between the drillers was the morning entertainment of who knocked off the most metres that morning and who could proudly chalk it up on the, on the, on the board or who'd brought shame upon their family and, and rig and team. And in the courtyard, it was it was a shantytown courtyard. It was mm-hmm. forty four gallon drums on on rods and shade cloth pulled pulled kind of in different directions and flapping around in the wind. But everyone just got on and did it and had a had a great time. You know, it was, yep. it was it's a really special part in the company's history, I think, and associated with with the maiden resource. Really yeah, yeah. Well, you know, well, what's end up kind of. So, so the question for you, Kyle, I mean, you're in the, I guess, enviable position of being someone that, you know, saw it from day one all the way and you're still involved in the project now. I mean, what do you, like, you know, what are your thoughts on, on this project? Now that you look back over that 10-year journey in the company, you know, like, what are things that kind of come to your mind? I mean, personally, there, there's a few things if I could go back, just just little things, little little things we missed out on that we could have done better in terms mm-hmm. of that you know, reaching for technical excellence, um, data we didn't collect. The hole you stopped in mineralization. The hole I stopped. That that, yeah. uh, I'm trying to let go of that. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd, I wish I'd spend a bit more time trying to understand the geology itself. It kind of, as the drilling really ramped up and models went on, like at times where I was able to contribute to mm-hmm. the model a little bit, but I wish I'd, spent more time working on that and a little bit less on designing drilling and, and some of that on-ground technical stuff and, and, mm-hmm. and rig management. And then going going to work at the miner. I don't know, I've still, still, got a, still, still thinking a lot on, on Gruyere, but, yeah, I wish, wish, wish we could have done a little bit more in the model mm-hmm. personally. Yep. Um, just and, to have and, more and involvement in that in that process? Just to have driven it more. I guess, yeah, guess okay. hindsight, though, some of the data we... We didn't collect. I wish we'd wish we'd collected at the time, but mm-hmm. that was kind of driven by circumstance and what we needed to do against kind of what yeah. we wanted to do. Yeah, we should take more photos. <laughs> <laughs> just oh, a photographer. Yeah, just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think there's just just a lot of great people and 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 times out there. A lot of candid moments that kind of get lost in the lost in the drill season. It's, yep. yeah, f- photography and those little work programs are really important to me. It's mm-hmm. to paint that. And that kind of picture of the time and, and people involved. It's it's the people who really make these projects. Yep. Um, I mean, I think, like I said, I think the fact that, you know, like you have been involved in this project from obviously seeing, you know, pre-discovery, the discovery, the development, and now into production. Uh, yeah, obviously, yeah, the most people struggle to find things, but to actually find something that gets into a mine, you know, that's, that's always a great, great position to be in. I, I guess I, I was really fortunate for, for Gold Road to to hang on me and there, there were times it was really tough and after really busy drill seasons you can have the wind kind of knocked out of you and, and lose a bit of that energy after years and years mm-hmm. you know that that discovery discovery to maiden resource that was a 
really exciting period and a huge buzz, but it's really busy as well. There's a lot of big swings and a lot of late nights. And then for the years after and, and then rebooting kind of Yamana exploration once we'd mm-hmm. packaged Gruyere off to the to the technical team to do their studies. So I guess to to be able to stick around and, and, and to have that experience to see the, the discovery to mill mill process. You know, there were times where I probably want, I wanted to throw in the towel and mm-hmm. like he had mates and bosses like Justin and Jono and Clayton Davies and Jane mm-hmm. Levitt to to reel us back in. Mm-hmm. Um I don't think I'd be here today or would have had the experience it would have if I'd in motions of kind of times of being tired and a bit bit over it and thrown in the towel and if I'd left her would have would have thrown away some pretty good opportunities and, and learning experiences. So this is sticking it out. Yeah, fair enough. Um so so something lighter at the end of our interview, we always ask, I guess, two questions. So the first one is, what is something that you think needs to die in mining? It's, it could be an idea, a concept, a behavior that you think we need to get rid of out of our industry. So you go ahead first, oh, Justin. Look, it might be a bit sort of cliche or topical or whatever, but misogyny, sexism in mining needs to go. We need to employ more people, women. Mm-hmm. And diversity, we need to provide an environment where they can work comfortably, um, and we can't lose them. We lose. There's so much talent, female talent in the industry that we lose for a whole variety of reasons. Yeah, we've got to do better. Cool, great one, Kyle. For me, it's it's kind of stemming out of my new role in business development, but it's kind of. Kind of a geological bias towards bigger areas with this belt scale terrain, but I find it really, really confusing when you're chatting to people in, in our industry and talking about these bigger under, underexplored areas, areas I've never seen contemporary exploration. When I mean contemporary exploration, like really deeper drilling, you know, mm-hmm. busting through the surface, and you kind of ask why they've never been explored and it's, oh, there's there's no gold there, you know, mineralisation models yep. and analogues. But we thought we proved that wrong time and time again. You know, we, we kind of, we did it at Yamana mm-hmm. for a long time. There was the Yamana terrain and the Yamana and Dorothy Hills Greenstone belts were never proposed to hold a multi-million ounce resource and mm-hmm. we've proven that wrong and, and Gold Road are trying to prove it wrong again, that we can it can hold more than one. Mm-hmm. Just with it's within Australia or different different areas of the world, but when it comes to gold exploration, the more someone tells you that an area that is underexplored is not prospective for gold, for me that's a that's a huge driver that it's it probably is actually pretty great, and you should something yeah, just needs yeah, to get in right. there and, and work. It's just just that bias, the bias in being model driven in in certain areas. Maybe model driven mo- models and models and analogs are really important, but mm-hmm. there is a point where you need to go and test it. As well, uh, uh, yeah, when when they become a concrete fact, yeah. and as, as geoscientists and particularly exploration geologists, um, those statements shouldn't carry much weighting until you until you've got some results to yeah that's to back right. it up. That's all right. I uh, know. I think that's a good one. Um, so last question. Uh, so conversely, what is something that you think needs to we should maintain in mining at all costs? Something that's fundamental to our DNA uh, that we should never forget. Curiosity. People need to be curious, and and I think we're losing that. There, there's so much information available. There's just information overload and mm-hmm. and sensory overload, and and I think 
it's quite easy for people to stop being curious about what they're looking at or what they're doing or what they're learning or and it's it's too easy to learn false information there's mm-hmm. so much out there and google and wiki you know don't always trust what you read but be curious about everything you see and i think there's a lot of people out there and a lot of young geos that aren't quite as curious as as they could be and not mm-hmm. questioning and not questioning about what they see and thinking about it mm-hmm. it's, I, a, it, I, it's something i've been trying to drive for for the last probably five years is just a drive for curiosity and what you're doing mm-hmm. do you think in kind of the big corporate cultures that we have do you think it's possible to maintain that kind of curiosity and creativity that that you know that ability for people to to test themselves when we are becoming a, a lot more administrative in the way that we handle people and resources and companies? It's much harder. It's definitely much harder. And I think in the bigger companies it becomes harder and harder still. You know, I had a lot of conversations about this with sort of some of the our general manager of capability and culture at Gold Road. We used to talk about this on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. How do we drive that that curiosity? Yep, and stop it being stifled by process and system, which process and system very, very easily stifles curiosity and creativity if you're not careful. Yeah, that's right. We become a little bit more about yeah, like always trying to find you know the square peg that has to go into that square hole. And I always think that I mean, maybe uh, I'll be interested in your perspective. So, as a manager, do you think that you have to take on a little bit more in the fact that you have to? figure out a way of having these kind of disparate people in your company, like Ziggy or, you know, like do you have to accept that, yeah, they like for all intents and purposes, let's call these people a little bit of a pain in the ass to manage. Do you have to take on that responsibility as a manager to some degree? Absolutely. And and don't stifle it, you know, be, I think, especially in geology, geology needs to, needs creativity mm-hmm. and it needs to have some, some of the weird geos out there. It needs to have some of those weird minds because they're the ones that are going to come up with the zany ideas which are going to amount to something. That's right. So you need to, as a manager and a leader, you need to ensure that you're creating and allowing diversity in the team and diversity of thought as well. Mm-hmm. As soon as you start getting, you know, if everyone's the same and it's just all group thought, you're not, you're not going to be successful in anything. Yeah. So embracing that those creatives is really important mm-hmm. and being a you know manage they're hard to manage mm-hmm. really hard to manage but yep. you've got to be prepared for that and put your hand up to manage it and and fight for them as well you know fight against the other forces in companies that <laughs> yeah. might say oh they're a bit weird or they're they're behaving badly or they're mm-hmm. they might be behaving badly you know it might look bad but it's not it's not malicious or it's not, or really it's not bad yeah. or malicious it's just yeah, it's just it's their personality. Of people, you need to have those people, mm-hmm. and you need to manage them and fight for them. That's a great point. All right, Kyle, you, what would you maintain in our industry? This big innovation push. It's a lot of amazing work being done about different analytical techniques, machine learning, data learning. But what I'm really enjoying seeing is, and it kind of leads on to what you're both talking about. Then is facilitating this creative time for geos and. And, and harnessing this curiosity or promoting it. And I want to see more, there's some great stuff being done, but driving further and in innovation of 
um, management and geosystems. Now, that sounds really boring, but geology roles now, exploration or mining, the administration and reporting is becoming pretty crippling. And it really, that time you get to have that creative time to just look over data, mm-hmm. no time frame, go and re-log something. It's really starting to be whittled down by all these administrative responsibilities. Mm-hmm. I like to see innovation drive more kind of one-stop shop management and reporting systems. And look, there's a lot of people doing this stuff, so maybe we just, I haven't seen it, but yep. I think that would be a really great space to help facilitate that pure, unrestructive geology time. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think your point is fair in the fact that you know, in the world where we want to measure things, you know, it's always it's often hard. Not often; it's almost always hard to measure the direct product or impact of creative time because it's a non-linear process. Yeah, you know, it's not like if you spend an hour, then you're going to get an hour's worth of kind of product out of it. Yeah, you, know, you might spend a week and get nothing, or you might spend an hour and get a lot. Yeah, yeah. so the, so there's this complete disparity in how that that works. And in a measurable world where, like, everyone wants to measure, you know, like, did you make 10 widgets today? Uh, you know, like, it's a pretty hard kind of kind of thing to kind of create in that organization. The, the modern exploration geologists can wear a lot of hats these days. And in a smaller company, you can also be equal parts database and tenement management and reporting. And they're all great experience to learn and, and to know how to execute and important to the business. But mm-hmm. It's kind of funny when you map out what a day and a week might look like with your key responsibilities are measured and you do need to achieve for the business requirements Mm -hmm. and then the things that you can't quantify their value. But we know from history and other discoveries that that time that you can't put a value on, it's unquantifiable, it's really important. And when that's being reduced in your day to only only a little bit, something's really wrong with that. Yeah. Um, so one last question, which I, you know, we're kind of trying to ask people, uh, is what's your greatest travel story? Is there a story that, yeah, comes to mind first? You guys can go, whoever comes first. You, you go, Justin. Any travel? Yeah, any, anything. Could be personal, could be work. Anything that you find, yeah, if I said, give me your best travel story, what are you going to lay out there? Oh, God. <laughs> I need to think about that one. I, I can jump in with one while Aussie's thinking. Um, just before I graduated mid-year at Curtin, which is mm-hmm. kind of odd, I had a, f- a few units to finish off that I had the pleasure of redoing, yeah. um, not to mention structural geology. <laughs> but it was for It's good that, that you work on a structurally hosted gold deposit then, so that's, that's excellent. We, we've got specialists for that now. For yeah. Great learning opportunity. Yep. But Curtin... For the first time in conjunction with the Rio Tinto Centre and the director there, um, a, a Russian guy, Vladimir, had kind of partnered up this, this weird science kind of conference summit program in central Siberia in Tomsk. Okay. Um, it's kind of focused on climate change affecting geomorphology in the Altai region. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there were just posters up around the different science department units and you could apply to go over there and be part of this this summit. Um, not being a geomorphologist or, or having some interest in sedimentology at least, I wrote a little abstract and a submission and somehow managed to fudge my way into a AGSO-funded 
student trip to to central Siberia in summer, mind you. The yep. the beautiful month and a half of sun they get. Yep. Um, and it was unreal. We this university that was I think the building was just a tad older than colonial Australia. Yeah. Um, hosted us for this kind of two days of translated conference. Mm-hmm. And then we spent a week kind of camping and travelling all the way down to the to the Russian Altai Mountains, in which the university, Tom, Tom State University, that hosts us have a, a glacial research centre up there and a school of mountaineering. So if you're a university student, you can spend your university break learning to mountaineer. Excellent. So a pretty common commonplace yep. extracurricular activity for them. I mean, what else would you do in Central Siberia? And I mean, just the whole trip up there, we were while we were on the main roads, we were just in a regular travel bus and these kind of amazing campsites by these rivers in these big glacial floodplains. (laughs) Then it was going up to the mountain where it all changed. The bus parked in this huge flat grassy plain and we could see the mountains and the glaciers behind us. And then parked there were four ex-Soviet Union Russian trucks. (laughs) (laughs) No seats, all us... 20 students, some from Europe and, and the rest from Curtin, piled into the back of this just metal box. There was a small potbelly fire in the corner. Yep. And then started a four-hour <laughs> descent of this eight-cylinder diesel vodka-powered truck <laughs> <laughs> into the mountains. And it was, it was a truck designed for driving, so it was, there was no real road up there. They were just kind of winging it. Yep. And gee, did we felt it. I think everyone hit the roof. At least half a dozen times, or a few mild concussions and a, a few bleeding heads by the time we got up there. Uh, On the plus side, you're not going to remember the drive anyway, so you'll be fine. <laughs> We'd also taken enough enough of um, Russia's finest little water, or yeah, the, yeah, the, the clear spirit to um to soothe our pain. But that was amazing. That was actually my first time overseas. Uh, yeah, wow. turned 22 in the mountains, and just a great group of people climbing up the glaciers every day, trying to converse with. Russian geologists and geomorphologists where there was just a 99% language barrier, Mm -hmm. but just lots of gesticulating about specimens. It was, yeah, it was time of our life. Yeah, wow. Jeez. Justin? I've thought. So mine was probably um, 1993. I got got married. So my wife was another geologist at WMC. Mm -hmm. Got married. We were lucky enough to get some leave without pay from WMC from Cambodia, and we went to Europe for a three-month trip. And it was our first time overseas for both of us. Mm-hmm. Um, she's Croatian background, so during that trip, we just drove around Europe. But yep. During that trip, we went to visit her family in Croatia. So Croatia in 1993 was in the middle of the, the Yugoslav breaking up. It was in the middle of the war. Yep. So we went to visit her family in, in northern northern Croatia up near the Hungarian border. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, the mother's side of the family, we stayed with them for a few days. And then we were going to drive to see uh, her uncle on, a, on her father's side, which was down on, on, on the islands in the, in the Croatian Gulf. Mm-hmm. So we were told sort of, you know, go this way, just sort of we're given a rough route and we just had it in those days. There was no GPS, there was no, you know, it was all paper maps. Yep. So we jumped in the car and we drove down to to see her uncle. And on the way we went through, sort of, we were told, you know, go around, don't go right into Karlovac, sort of go past this, this town. So we were driving along and 
um, past Zagreb and then down and started seeing sort of a bit of smoke around the place. Driving with that, well, you know, what's going on here? I'm not sure how close to the war front we are, but we were driving along and then, then we started seeing trucks driving along with sort of army trucks and tanks on the back and um, turned out we were probably about 10 kilometres from the war front. <laughs> <laughs> so we saw when we started seeing yeah. big convoys of trucks, we thought we better. So we drove around and further around, and we managed yeah. to get a get by that. But we were extraordinarily close to yeah. what was an active war front <laughs> at the time. We had no idea. Yeah, this we sounds like the plotline of like a Mr. Bean episode. Right <laughs> so there. We finally got down, sort of around Riaka, which is right up the, the top of the bus, the, the, the Gulf, mm-hmm. um, around onto the one of the islands where I had to get a ferry across to the island. Um, Gave him. We didn't have a lot of cash at this point, Croatian cash. So gave him some money, ferry onto the island and down to the island and got to her uncle. And it turned out we had no idea. So they were displaced from, they were from Vukova, which is right over on the Yugoslav border, Serbian mm-hmm. border. So the uncle and his his wife and daughter and two grandchildren were staying in a refuge, a hospital which had been turned into a hostel. Yep. So we stayed with them for a few days. Oh, far out. Um so during this time, we're watching the news each afternoon and, and the Serbians were coming up up the coast. Yep. They had boats out there and they were like bombing, <laughs> bombing Dubrovnik and the bombing sort of split. And they were coming up the coast. We were right up the north. Mm-hmm. And it was just getting closer and closer. Yep. And they were all talking Croatian. I had no idea what was talking, <laughs> no idea what was on the news. My wife would tell me every night, oh, they're up to Dubrovnik. They're coming yep. closer. It's like, what should we do? I think we should get out of here. But there was only like one ferry a week. We couldn't get off the back <laughs> yeah. off the island. So we were waiting for the ferry. And then I got a little bit crook while we were there as well and ended up with some sort of stomach ailment. So I was crook and wasn't sort of – it was bizarre. It was this, this hostel but on this like beautiful Croatian island, crystal yep. clear waters. You go swimming every day and but they were living on hostel food and then – Serbian army or navy was getting closer and closer and closer and then we could hear sort of sort of planes at night and all sorts of stuff and and I still remember so clearly this day we were sitting around in this little they had this tiny little kitchen you know they're all in like two rooms together yeah yeah so we're there having a cup of tea and we heard this like an explosion I thought we thought it was a bomb so my wife and I, Janet, we jumped under the table, we were hiding under the table. What's going on? And they all started laughing and laughing. And so, what's going on? And they said, USA, USA. And I said, what's going on? The noise was a USA jet fighter pilot or jet plane flying over the top of us and explode, uh, breaking the sound barrier, the sonic boom. Oh, US wow. had just decided then, that day, to basically join the war. They flew in, yep. jet planes came in. And shooed the Serbians away. That was the day they basically saved ended Croatia. The war. Ended, ended, yeah, wow. Basically ended the invasion of Croatia. Jeez. Um, what so, a way to start your marriage. So That's excellent. <laughs> we managed managed to get off the island. Yeah, but, shit, uh, if you can survive that, yeah, you guys, you, you'll be fine. <laughs> That's a brilliant story. Yeah, it was it was remarkable. Yeah. I mean, a fascinating time, I think. In, yeah, like obviously in that area, you know, the Yugoslavian kind of a country or yeah like the region had been held together for so long it would have been a fascinating time to be there at that time oh it was it was quite amazing yeah. quite quite horrific there was some terrible terrible stories yeah of, yeah you know, cousins lost and all sorts of stuff but yeah 
Mm. I mean, yeah. a lot of those wounds are still there now, and like oh, the way absolutely. the are, are still kind of, yeah. you know, like not really dealing with each other in probably the best manners. Um, but yeah, that's a great story. Uh, so that's it, guys. That that's it. Us done. So thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks. Thank you thanks, so Alan. much. This episode of Expression Radio was brought to you by Ahmad Salim and Steve Beresford. Produced by Sean Jeffrey, edited by Hamayu Mir, and recorded live in August 2021. This episode of Expression Radio was sponsored by the One to One Group and The Asset. Find out more about them on our website, expressionradio.com. If you like this podcast, then consider becoming a sponsor to help us continue producing more of this content. You can email us on info at expressionradio.com or reach out to us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, let's keep exploring. So now you want to know why the deposit called Gruyere? Well, here's how to explain why. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. When we completed the targeting exercise in 2012, that ultimately led to the targeting of Gruyere, or the targeting across the entire Yamana Belt. Part of the targeting exercise was structural targeting, and we had a few industry specialists uh, work with the business to generate those targets. And they needed a naming scheme, so they appropriately used beer and cheese as the scheme to name all the targets, and, and, and Gruyere was one of them. There were actually two targets that sat over the, the Gruyere area. One was a structural target called Gruyere, and the other one was a Doug Haynes Redox target called Yam 13. So Gruyere was the, the slightly more attractive name. By Yam 14 was the target and, and the small discovery we made just pre-Gruyere to, to the south of the deposit. And then the Yam 13 and Redox target, and then kind of overlapping with the Gruyere structural target. So Gruyere was the name that stuck around early on, and then I guess once it was out in the market, that's, that's what it was always going to be known as. Um, and definitely once the, the cheese-based puns started rolling in, it was pretty set in stone.